0: And this is DataCast. Join me for all conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of DataCast. And today, I have the pleasure to be on a call with Carl Gore. Carl, currently a chief data scientist at Zora, has a PhD from the California Institute of Technology and uh, many first author publications in leading machine learning and neuroscience journals. Before coming to Zora, he spent most of his post-academic career as a quantitative analyst on Wall Street. Now as a data scientist, Carl has written a book about using insights from data to reduce customer churn to be released in August 2020 entitled Finding Churn with Data. So, Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Fantastic. So I want to start our conversation talking about your educational background. So I saw that you studied electrical engineering at Stanford back in the early 90s for your undergrad. How was your college experience at Stanford?
2: My college experience at Stanford was great, I have to say. And it's not only that Stanford is a great university, it was also honestly kind of a different time In the technology world, I think there was, in a way, a lot more optimism back then. That was when the internet was first just being invented. And you know, we got to college and it was like, oh wow, we got email, you know? But there was a lot more optimism and there were a lot fewer negative consequences that have come out of technology. Even just Palo Alto. If you know Palo Alto, California today, it is the most expensive, rich, gentrified town like you'll find, but you know, back in the nineties, Palo Alto wasn't even very gentrified, you know, there were still hippies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a different time. It seems like now.
1: Yeah. What about electrical engineering? I guess that attracted you to, to study in some of your favorite classes, I suppose.
2: Well, I actually was attracted to electrical engineering. Cause I felt like I wanted a fundamental understanding of computers, but the truth is well, and technology generally, but the truth is I gave up electrical engineering as soon as I graduated mm. um, because that was in the 90s, like I mentioned, the internet was just being invented. And if you looked at the choices back then of going to work in like a semiconductor company versus like going to work for a website, going to work for a website just seemed much cooler because it was exciting <laughs> and you know, new. Mm-hmm. So I don't, don't even remember too much of my electrical engineering, although it did turn out to be useful in my PhD studies, all the electronics and electromagnetism and stuff.
1: I see. And so right up to college between 1998 and 2000, you um, received master' degrees in computer science at NYU and then after that at King's College. How was your years in, in New York and in London? And what were some of your favorite, I guess, computer science classes that you've taken there?
2: Yeah, well, I started this computer science studies because, well, like I said, I had studied electrical engineering and then when I graduated, I pretty much immediately became like a programmer and I'd only taken one or two programming courses in my undergrad. So I felt like I needed more background to be a successful programmer. Um, But what I remember most is actually the artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning classes that I got into because that was actually what led me on you know, to want to do a PhD. I mean, I started out just taking the basic computer science, uh, which is good. You know, it's important to get the fundamentals, but yeah, pretty quickly, my interest focused on the the AI and machine learning.
1: What kind of material is that, you know, uh, AI classes back in, you know, the, the late nineties was, was being taught, you know?
2: Well, God, yeah, it was different. I mean, you, you got more like rule-based logic systems and what they called expert systems were back then. Although at the same time though, neural networks was a big part of it and that's actually what I studied at King's College. Um, So there was already a lot of work being done with neural networks and, you know, back propagation was already being used, although it hadn't been developed to the full extent that it would be a few years later. But at the same time, you know, back when I was studying, that was also when technologies like support vector machines, Gaussian process classifiers were, were very new. And there was a lot of excitement in the field around that. And actually, for my master's thesis, I did work on uh, support vector machines, mm-hmm. which was, was published in, in some journals.
1: That's very cool. Yes, a perfect machine. That's definitely still um, one of the fundamentals algorithms that's still being taught these days. So definitely, I guess how some of that method works back in the day was definitely useful.
2: Definitely. I mean, in the neural net, we were, and we were all studying neural networks back then too. Although, like I said, the advances, you know, with things like stochastic gradient descent were a few years away. So we were still learning, I guess, non-stochastic gradient descent back then. And of course, no one had worked with convolution neural networks at that time. That also mm-hmm. came later. But there was still a lot of work and a lot of theoretical work being done on neural networks, which is what all those later developments came out of.
1: Absolutely. And so uh, between 2000 and 2007, you um, pursued your PhD in computation and neurosystem at Caltech. Why did you decide to pursue a doctorate in computational neuroscience and I guess, can you also share a brief summary of your PhD thesis that focused on uh, the biophysics of extracellular action potentials?
2: Yeah, so the Computation and Neural Systems Program at Caltech is a great program and it's still running today. And the goal of the program is to bring together neuroscience and AI researchers, hoping that the two fields could reinforce each other you know, and in further understanding of both the brain and machine learning. So that's, you know, what attracted me to it, just because, well, I had learned a little bit about, you know, non-neural network machine learning and neural networks. I was more attracted to the kind of neural network theory. Mm-hmm. Although I'll, I have to say, though, I had a big disillusionment in that program, because when I went into it, I actually thought that the neural networks research was really... Um, really closely related to the brain and once I spent time there you know we really learned neuroscience in that program so they would take in people who didn't have any neuroscience background like people like me who maybe had a computer science or engineering background or physicists mathematicians and they would give us all like a core training in neuroscience and then we would work in different laboratories Once we actually learned about neuroscience, you pretty quickly realize that neural networks doesn't really have much to do with how the brain actually works. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still say this today, If, if you think that the neural networks that people use for machine learning are closely related to the brain, I think that that's actually not the case. They, don't, they still don't really know a lot about how brains really process information, surprisingly. And many people in data science you know, and machine learning communities don't appreciate that the models they use really don't map very well to the brain. And there's a lot of debate over this. It's a, it's a hot topic. So my thesis ended up, I actually, so I got disillusioned about neural networks <laughs> and AI research and i wanted to do a research project that was more focused on understanding the brain from first principles the project i worked on as you mentioned it was called biophysics of extracellular action potentials and you may know that an action potential is the electric spike in a neuron or a nerve cell any nervous system cell but also the neurons in your brain so the action potential is the spike and you might have seen, if you, know, if you know about this, you might have seen that the spike propagates down the nerve fiber in like a pulse, pulse shape. And that was very well understood. But uh, neurons also broadcast electric fields around them extracellularly, so that's the extracellular part. It's the field that's generated around the neuron when it's having a spike travel through it on the inside. And the weird thing at the time was that the spikes that they recorded extracellularly had a lot of different shapes, meaning the polarity of the spike could be positive or it could be negative, but that was weird because inside the cell there was only one polarity. So there was not a lot of understanding about how the spike inside the cell led to the electric field outside of the cell. And I worked with, on a, a biophysical model and so it was actually based on physics and, uh, and electricity. Uh, so that's actually where my electrical engineering background came in very handy because the nerve cell model we used was a circuit-based model. So I was easily able to work with the circuit models. And then we worked with those models and compared them to real data from extracellular uh, recordings until we figured out, I figured out, you know, what explained the different characteristics of the extracellular spike so it's not directly related to AI as you you might see from my explanation mm-hmm. um, but it was very useful and important research for you know for neuroscientists mm-hmm. and I think the paper- the the main paper from my thesis so we submitted papers throughout my thesis, and I think my first paper you know has had more than five hundred citations uh in the past ten years, which is pretty good you know it's not like you know, it's not the most cited paper ever, but you know, it's certainly quality work that has influenced a lot of people uh, and their understanding of the brain.
1: I see. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot for really digging into the the weeds, the details of your of your work. And I think too that, much in the weeds. <laughs> no, actually. That that I, I love I love the details, and that's what really I want to extract the knowledge from from the guests. Is like really dig, dig into the the passion, and then you know, the reason why they do certain things and and their work as well. I guess, like I'm just curious. You mentioned that even these days, artificial neural network, the mechanism that, that people design, the researchers design, it still doesn't really correlate with um, actual biological neurons and how, how the brain works. Was there any particular that research direction that you you would like to suggest for for people who, who want to design more biologically inspired intelligent
0: system?
2: I have my own research. I actually have like a pet project. My hobby is to do some <laughs> more realistic. The thing is, I I think researchers in this who want to do more things that are more related to the brain is you actually have to take a step away from the gradient descent learning, because I mean, that's the key area where no one can see find that in the brain, right? (laughs) So the question is, if you're not going to use gradient descent, how do you get the network, you know, to do something useful? Mm -hmm. Um, And there are different you know theories one is more unsupervised learning and my own theory that I've worked on in, in some of my free time is that there's more structure in the connections that arise from the innate biology and the structure of the connections may help the brain learn without that propagation.
1: I see yeah thanks a lot for clarifying that. Stepping back from academic research for a little bit I believe that during your time as a PhD student you also spent a couple of years working as a business analyst and consultant for HBO so how was your experience working in Hollywood and what were some of the projects to work on for HBO?
2: Uh, it was fun I mean you know it was I mean honestly though I was like you know in their IT department effectively writing software <laughs> but it, it was fun to be at a cool company like HBO it was just always exciting it was also that was during some of the like almost like the high point of HBO's lineup, like when shows like The Sopranos and Sex and the City were being made. Uh, but the truth is, <laughs> my role was much more humble. I wasn't mingling with the stars. <laughs> I worked in their IT department. Um, they wrote a lot of their own software. And so one of the systems I worked on was for the scheduling, the programming. They, they had a custom scheduler you know, that they wrote. It was in C++, and it would talk directly to the satellite system that programmed the shows. And then another project I worked on was, oh my God, managing contracts in Hollywood and designing an object. We worked on an object oriented model for Hollywood contracts, which as maybe you can imagine. It was like the most crazy complicated model because the contracts were, had so many irregularities and non-standard, you know, features. So, right. So it wasn't, it wasn't really very deep kind of work but you know it, it was good experience
1: yeah absolutely you know not a lot of people can tell can tell that they, they work for HBO so <laughs> yeah after finishing your PhD at Caltech you um start your industry career as a quantitative analyst at Morgan Stanley Capital International back in 2007 what was the rationale behind uh, this decision to move from academic neuroscience to quantitative finance
2: It was a lot of personal reason, to be honest, which, I mean, I was married at the time, and my wife became pregnant, so we were having our first child was due right around when I was finishing my PhD, and, you know, it's just challenging, particularly, well, in biology, because I was in the biology program, so if I was going to continue in academic work, I would be in, you know, I would do postdocs in biology, but biology postdocs were usually like eight years long, so it was a long time. And that means, you know, graduating with your PhD, you know, it's like to sign up to do eight more years at a very low salary, you know, knowing that, you know, we were going to have a family. It was just, I just didn't think it was the right move. I don't think my wife would have been happy with that kind of lifestyle, you know, moving around. So, you know, the option of leaving academia and going to industry just made sense. Now, back at the time, that was 2007, and it was before the financial crash of 2008 and 2009. And I don't know if you remember, but there was actually a pretty different perception of the world of finance Mm -hmm. um, in that time. Because it was a time of a very strong economy, and everyone in finance and Wall Street was making a ton of money. And there was a general belief that quantitative finance was really doing some good for the world and making a lot of money for the people involved, particularly at hedge funds and things like that. Now, it turned out that, as we all learned in 2008 and 2009, a lot of it was a bubble Uh, the housing bubble that then burst and (laughs) almost wrecked the economy and ruined (laughs) the livelihood of many people in the financial industry at the time. But in 2007, finance looked like a reasonably good profession and also it was before data science was a thing really there, there was no career in data science in 2007 although there were jobs in machine learning and to be honest when I was interviewing I in the end I had to choose I had two job offers one doing machine learning with a subsidiary of Oracle you know the Oracle Corporation they didn't call it data science back then but it would have been like a machine learning engineering job So I had that offer. And then I had another offer to work at the finance company, uh, although also in the Bay area, because they had the, they had an office, a research center in Berkeley. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a long story, that one, but it was founded by a Berkeley professor, this startup. And then it got acquired by Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. So I had to choose between working on Oracle (laughs) in Redwood city and working at this finance company in Berkeley. And in the end, I, I chose a lot just based on the location. I wanted to live in Berkeley mm-hmm. <laughs> more than Redwood City. <laughs> if you know the Bay Area, it's a big difference in the type of town, you know, and the lifestyle there. And you know, so I mean, and also at the time finance seemed like a reasonable career. It was the main option for people who didn't want to pursue academia back then. Like until data science became a thing, if you did a PhD in science and you didn't want to stay in science, your best option was to go to Wall Street. Mm. Um, now that data science is such a thriving field, actually, you know, that's a, it's a good option too. But back then, I mean, finance was your main choice to get out of academia.
1: So you said the, the company started in Berkeley and got acquired by, by Morgan Stanley. So when, when did you move to, to Wall Street then?
2: Oh, I actually never moved to Wall Street. I guess I oh. should cl- be, to be perfectly honest, I worked at a Wall Street company, which, oh, okay. you know, Got was it. Morgan Stanley Capital International, and they had a headquarters on Wall Street and we would travel, I would travel out there, mm. you know, a couple of times a year, but our actually, our home office was, you know, not in Wall Street.
1: Got it. Yeah. So, so you spent like seven years at Morgan Stanley Capital International and eventually rising to a leadership role as a VP of risk modeling. So what is your proudest accomplishment throughout your tenure there? And what are some of the valuable lessons that you learned from working in a, in a financial industry, I suppose?
2: I mean, my proudest accomplishments there were, you know, deploying new models. I worked in a fixed income risk analytics team, which means we were analyzing the risk in bonds. Uh, that's what a fixed income means, a bond, basically, an asset that pays you a fixed you know, payment uh, every year. And I was definitely proud of the work that I did because they had a lot of old models that hadn't been updated for a while. And the, the bond market had become a lot more dynamic since the models had been created. And so I did some really great work basically updating and adapting the models to make them a lot more dynamic and responsive because the pace of trading had had sped up a lot. So the old models were only updated once a month and we worked to up make faster moving models that were a lot more specific about different kinds of industries and governments that were issuing bonds. And you know it's the type of stuff where, you know, it didn't change the world, but I'm certainly proud of the the quality work that i did as far as lessons that i learned working on wall street it was actually where i really saw the power of statistics and explainable models because in the world of fixed income which i was saying is bonds now bonds are very illiquid and they don't trade very often so it's a real data scarce environment to do research you don't have very high frequency observations of bonds because they're not very dynamic uh, instruments. So they really focused on statistics and interpretable models because, you know, the intuition and domain knowledge of the traders was key, and any model which didn't contribute to their knowledge and understanding would not be accepted. So machine learning was completely not accepted in the world of fixed income back then. It probably still isn't because, like I said, the slow pace of trading means you don't have a lot of observations to train a model on. So you really need to rely on your your knowledge to. But at the same time, people, they wanted to be quantitative, but they insisted on quantitative models that added to their understanding. So that was a really powerful lesson for someone who had spent the most, more time previously on machine learning, where in machine learning, you don't care about understanding. You just got a good data set that lets you forecast. Another key lesson from my Wall Street days was the importance of correlation in your features, or really the importance of not having correlation in your input features. Because in the statistical models, that they used on Wall Street, because they were using regression and statistics, the uncorrelatedness of the features was very, very important. And at the same time, they had to make interpretable and uncorrelated features. So they wouldn't just use like a principal component analysis to make things uncorrelated. They would actually understand the problem and engineer features that were powerful yet uncorrelated. And that was very influential in my thinking still to this day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks a lot for really distilling those lessons and yeah, really emphasizing on the importance of, I guess, you know, understanding the, the problem of building models that interpretable, you know, powering features that actually have, have a meaningful, you know, predictive powers to, to the final uh, output, less so about the actual algorithm aspect, but more in terms of the, the quality of the data and, and the eventual output. In 2014, you moved to San Francisco to work as a lead data scientist at Spark which views a customer success SaaS solution. What is the story behind this you know, career transition and what was some of your responsibility, at Spark?
2: The first part of this career transition was that I didn't want to be in the finance world anymore. Like I said, after the financial crash, I mean, many people, we kind of saw that finance really wasn't so good. You know, the, the, the image of finance took a beating. And it didn't look like such a great thing to be doing anymore. And also, the work environment and the compensation wasn't so good anymore. You know, people weren't getting paid so much. The margins, the profit margins of the companies in the that sector were were under a lot of pressure. Uh, this is in like the early 2010s. And, and so it was no, it's no fun to work at a company where your profit margin is under pressure. You know why? Because they tell you, the bosses tell you, oh, every customer is the most important and you have to do everything the customer asks because we can't afford to lose a single customer. But we can't hire anyone because our margin is getting worse. So everything has to be done with the existing (laughs) headcount, which basically is them saying, you have to work harder because our business isn't doing well. (laughs) And that's okay for like a year. You know, I'm not like a rat who jumps off a sinking ship at the first sign. But after a couple of years of that, it's... You know, it just wasn't that fun, especially for, to be working in an industry that I had lost a lot of respect for. Right. And then at the same time, I, re- I knew from reading the news that data science was exploding. I mean, data science had become a thing and machine learning and statistics was at the heart of it. And since I already had the background in those fields for my academic work, I was thinking, well, I should go become a data scientist instead of being a Wall Street quant because it sounds like more fun and it sounds like a better industry to be in. Right. So I had some interviews. I was looking for different jobs. I ended up taking the role that I took through a connection with a friend. He had a startup called Sparked that would not to be confused with, you know, Spark, the, you know, the big data technology. Sparked, S-P-A-R-K-E-D. They had a data science-based product for recommending for, it was like a recommendation system for people and projects. Mm-hmm. And, but the CEO had had requests about churn analysis. So he had some of his customers say, had asked him, oh, can you do help us analyze our customer churn? Uh, and churn, if you don't know, means customers canceling or quitting from any product. So churn means, yeah, customers quitting. This friend of mine asked me to get involved to help with this new type of analysis. And so that was when I first became involved doing churn analysis. And I actually worked with them for almost like nine months before joining. I I just did it in my free time. This was a friend who just said, hey, can you, he already had a data scientist, but he was like, hey, can you help out? You know, his data scientist was also younger and more junior than me. This data scientist that they had hadn't done a PhD. So they just got me involved and after a while, eventually, you know, we just decided that I would quit finance and go full time to working with them. Mm-hmm. And so the product, yeah, like you said, it was like a customer analytics product to help software as a service companies or SaaS companies manage their customer churn.
1: I see. You know, after spending probably like more than a year at, at the Spark in the summer of 2015, you moved to Zora, which is... Um, a comprehensive subscription management platform with more than a thousand customers worldwide. Can you explain how subscription works in layman terms, and when is it uh, more effective than some of the other uh, standard business model, you know, such as marketplace, premium, or direct to consumer?
2: Well, some of those business models are overlapping, of course, um, but so. Let's see. So so a subscription business model is one where your customer signs up and commits, you know, to, to using it. And the thing is subscription is now the main model for software delivery. I mean, again, you're, I think a little bit younger than me, but people who are younger may not remember that before software as a service software was all sold in what they called perpetual license which means that you would buy it and then own it forever, the software. But the catch is upgrades were not included. (laughs) So when a new software version came out in a year or a year and a half or whatever it was, you'd have to pay to upgrade or you could keep using your old one. And that's just the way the world was. There was no continuous upgrading of software because the internet wasn't that well developed. Now, do you know Salesforce, the company? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Salesforce was the first breakout success in SaaS. They were the company that they completely disrupted the CRM business uh, with their SaaS offering. And then they showed that you could do enterprise quality software you know, using the subscription model. So in the software world, there really is no alternative to subscription. I mean, everything is, all software is basically sold by subscription, but Mm -hmm. you mentioned like other models, okay, freemium, so freemium is actually, we see it as like a kind of subscription service where you have a free option. So the free tier is just like a a basic level of service. You know, a lot of companies now follow this model. Like, well, for example, a common model is you get a free version where they're gonna play you ads, or you can get a paid version where they take away the ads. And that's a, a typical, you know, and then you're on subscription. So that's a typical freemium model. And direct to consumer actually, well, I think that means a lot of different things. Like a subscription can be direct to consumer. In fact, a lot of important subscriptions are now. So I think direct to consumer would include something like Disney Plus, for example. Whereas in the old days, you could only get the Disney channel through cable, right? That, or satellite TV. Now you can get Disney Plus through the internet. And that's direct to consu- an example of direct-to-consumer. Although I think there are other kinds of definitions of you know, direct-to-consumer. I mean, of course, there's also in-app purchase-supported software too, which is not really a subscription. But the thing is, churn is important in, the, in a model like in-app purchases too because churn just means your customers stop coming back, right? And if your business model depends on in-app purchases, then, well, you still need the customer to keep on coming back. So churn is still you know, an important thing. For any business model with recurring, uh, recurring revenue or repeat, repeat sales, so Did that all make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, yeah, yeah, that, that's understandable. And I guess, like, what really the, the big message is, like, if you an enterprise, you're selling enterprise software, then subscription is, like, the de facto business model, right? Yeah, there's a lot way to,
0: to go back.
2: Yeah, it's pretty much the standard. I mean, there, well, I mean, there's still a lot of enterprise software sold on a perpetual license, although a lot of those companies are switching to subscription, and then there's a lot of things that are kind of like a subscription because, you know, I, we work with these companies at Zora. It's like, let's say that a company sells software for, they sell it on perpetual license, but let's say they give you financing. So they're going to, you get a perpetual license, but they're going to finance it for three years with monthly payments, you know. And so then it's basically like a three-year subscription, right? Right. Yeah. Got so. it.
1: So let's look in a little bit deeper on, on some of this analysis, right? So as a chief data scientist at Zora, you have created the predictive analytics system for Zora subscriber analysis product called Zora Analytics. Maybe you already mentioned this. You know, let's talk a little bit about more. What are some of the common patterns that you have seen from analyzing subscriber churn for 100-plus you know, companies across this industry?
2: Well, the main lesson is actually really basic and it, it almost sounds trivial cuz it's so so basic <laughs> but the main lesson is that customers who don't use the product churn <laughs> and the more customers use the product the less they churn right. and that's the most foundational the most foundational thing you know in analyzing data and churn but the the key of course of you know actually analyzing it is to figure out you know how much does someone have to use the product to be healthy Right. So it's not, so when you do the analysis, I mean, you expect to find that the more people use the product, the less likely they are to churn. Mm-hmm. That's like the most basic thing. But the real question is how much, <laughs> how much do they have to use the product and how much does it reduce their churn likelihood and of the different areas of the product, which are the most important ones to use to prevent churn? Mm-hmm. Cause a lot of people will do, like analysis of customers, you know, just looking at something like, say, the logins. Oh, how much does the customer log in? Well, customer logging in doesn't necessarily do anything for them. So you really want to measure how much they do of the really valuable parts of the service. Um, and that's really the most common pattern that you'll see is the more people use the product, the less they churn. But the devil is in the details.
1: Yeah, and, and we'll talk about some of the details uh, later on. But before that, notice that you're also the creator of the Subscription Economy Index, which is basically Zuara's landmark index, checking the rapid ascent of the subscription economy. Can can you share the, the process of creating this annual index? And uh, what are some of the key trends that you have observed in the latest edition?
2: Sure, yeah. Well, it's a kind of complicated process. We actually wrote a methodology section. In our white papers, um, although I'll explain to the data scientists, it really starts with data cleaning because we have a. I mean, we we do this research on the companies on the Zora's platform, and I'd better back up and explain what Zora's platform does. Zora's platform allows companies to manage a subscription product and define different subscription plans, like if you have a basic plan, a standard plan, a premium plan. And then Zora's product also handles billing all your customers. So we do a lot of credit card billing for our customers and also accounting and, you know, financial stuff like revenue recognition. So because our data manages the billing for our customers, we actually have amazing data on how fast their revenue is growing. And also if their customers are churning or not churning, we can, and we have this data for around a thousand companies, you know, on Zora. So it's an amazing data set for the performance of these companies. And it's an amazing data set to study the performance of subscription companies generally. And, But the problem is the data is not clean in the following sense. So we're a platform, but companies migrate on and off of our platform, right? So... Someone, before someone is on Zora, their company has another billing system, and then they're going to set up Zora, and then they're going to migrate their billing over to Zora. Now, we want to measure revenue growth. The problem is, is that when those companies are still migrating, it looks like they're growing really fast, but they're actually just transferring their billing over from another system. And it may surprise you, but it's actually, you know, our system doesn't clearly delineate, you know, the migration and live period for the customer. I mean, it's actually very vague. I mean, how could we? It's very hard to know exactly what the customers are doing. On the flip side, we have customers churn, too. You know, so Zora's customers churn from time to time. I admit (laughs) it's true. Our customers churn as well. And when they do, their revenue running through our system goes down because they're migrating it off to another system. Now, unless they tell us in advance that they're churning, for me and the team that makes the analytics, we don't know if their business is contracting due to bad sales or if they're churning off of Zora. So both when companies go live and when they churn from Zora, we get these outliers of high growth. And low growth contraction, but at the same time, we also have real high growth companies, and we have really contracting companies. So we do a lot of work to clean the data and make sure that we're only looking at companies that are in between going live and churning, so we can really observe, the, you know, how their businesses evolve. Mm-hmm. So then we're looking at all these companies, and we look at things like, oh, their average growth rate, you know, and the average churn rate that we see trends in the subscription economy
1: i see thanks a lot but really
2: oh yeah well you also asked about trends that we're observing recently i should actually i can actually add uh we're preparing the new report right now uh for the first time we've reported post the current crisis with covid and what we do see is that this we mostly look at the sales growth rate um, we do see that there was a, a drop in the growth rate of subscription company sales. Last year, the subscri- subscription companies grew sales at average around 20%, which is, I mean, phenomenal. That's why this report is exciting. I mean, you know, most companies don't have double digit growth, let alone 20%. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the most recent quarter, the average growth rate fell to only 12%, although I shouldn't say only, right? Cause it's still double-digit growth, 12%, but it's down a lot from last year. Right, And so that, the thing is, though, that compares to the regular economy, the non-subscription economy, where it's contracting. Sales, well, in the subscri- last quarter, subscription economy, sales grew by 12%. But in the regular economy, sales contracted by 11%. Mm. So our growth rate may have come down, but it's still a double-digit growth rate. The regular economy has actually contracted. So that's the main trend.
1: I see. Yeah, and I guess that really showcased that subscription is a very defensible business model, right? Yeah,
2: I mean, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, your customers are signed up so that, you know, they stay more engaged. You know, there's so many of the new and exciting products and services that we all rely on to deal with this crisis are subscription. I mean, you know, Zoom, we're talking Mm -hmm. on Zoom right now, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Zoom is one of our, is our customer. Zoom is one of Zora's best customers actually. Right. Well, I should say they're a great customer because um, they're growing so fast. Unfortunately, they brought down Zora. We had a P zero incident <laughs> earlier this week when uh, Zoom they they raised some of their workloads too fast, and we weren't ready for it. It actually like made our system unavailable for a short period of time earlier this week. Mm-hmm. So we love them, but you know we have to, we've been working very hard to scale with them as their business grows.
1: I see. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Let's talk about some of the details in terms of churn prediction. Right. I want to go over two talks that you have kept given about churn. One at the 2019 Data castle San Francisco last year and then the other one at the recent 2020 Subscribe Online Conference, which is actually organized by Zora. And um, you mentioned that there are three main reasons that make churn a very difficult problem to fight against. Number one is that churn is hard to predict. Number two is that churn is even harder to prevent. And, and number three is that churn requires a multi-team effort. So yeah, would you mind unpacking that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Churn is hard to predict, even if you're doing a good job with your machine learning. And there's a few reasons for that, I think. One is that you never have complete information about your customers. So you're not gonna know everything that you'd like to know in order to predict their churn. And in particular, the experience of your customers is subjective. You know, you'll never really get inside their minds, right? It can be very, you know, because you don't have good information and the customer's opinion is subjective, it, it's hard to predict churn in, in a lot of cases. Now, there are some cases where it's really obvious someone is going to churn. Like what? Well, like I said earlier, if someone's not using your product at all, let's see, zero login, zero activity in their account, you're pretty sure they're at a high risk of churn. Mm -hmm. But the surprising thing is it can still take a long time for them to churn. And that's the timing is so unpredictable for people's churning because, well, I mean, we all have this experience, like, let's say, you know, you're, you're paying for Netflix or Hulu or something, and you get bored of all the movies and shows that they have. And then like a month or two goes by and you're like, Oh my God, I haven't watched anything on Netflix for two months. I should cancel that. And then you get distracted And you do something else and two weeks later you're like oh my god i haven't watched anything on netflix for two and a half months i should cancel that and then you're distracted (laughs) and then sometime maybe in the third or fourth month you actually get around to clicking the cancel button (laughs) that behavioral aspect makes churn you know hard to predict accurately or with a high degree of accuracy it's hard to predict churn i mean i have details in my book and on my website about well just how hard is it to predict but Anyway, that's as a general level. It's hard to predict. The thing is, it's even harder to prevent someone from churning, because let's take that person who's not using your product at all. It may be easy to predict that they're going to churn, but what are you going to do to stop them? Because they're churning because they're not getting value. And in order to stop them from churning, you have to make sure they get more value from your product. And it's hard to give people more value. It's actually easier to get them to sign up in the first place because then they don't know your product, right? Then they just believe your advertising or you can trick them with your advertising. But once they've actually paid their money and used your product, they know what it's really like. So you can't trick them or, or you know, pull a fast one. You actually have to deliver more value. <laughs> so that's why churn is, is really hard to prevent, even in cases where you think it's fairly predictable. I guess I have the saying that there's no silver bullets for churn, meaning, you know, there's no low cost and effective method that always works. You have to do work to improve your product, improve the way you engage with your customers, maybe fix your pricing to to make the pricing more attractive, you know, things like that. And and none of them are that easy to do. Mm -hmm. But it also brings to the third way that churn is hard to fight, which is, that it's a multi-team effort because I just mentioned, well, one way to improve your churn is to fix your product or make a better product. So that's the responsibility of your product creators. Another way to improve your churn is to have better interaction and engagement with your customers. Now that's a function for the marketing department if they send out emails or the customer success and customer support department who are gonna interact with customers on calls and trainings. Another, and I said, the other way to to help churn is to make a better pricing plan. And that's the responsibility of your sales and product marketing department. So all these different groups can do different things about churn, but they all have different ways of working and different tools that they use to do their job. And so it can become a question of like, whose responsibility is it? You know, a lot of finger pointing and disagreement on the metrics. So, yeah, so that's what other big reason churn is hard to fight
1: yeah thanks a lot really unpacking some of these points and make it clear the you know why, why is so such a big challenge in order to to deal with and i'm just curious like in the you know last part in terms of multi-team effort you know in, in your personal experience you know as a chief data scientist as you are working uh, across department i suppose you we work a lot with other uh, people at the ex- executive level from marketing sales or customer success Do you have any advice in terms of, like, you know, for data scientists, listeners out there who who want to collaborate better with these different functional departments?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's really all about taking the time to make your work interpretable and explainable and also avoiding jargon. In my book, I actually give specific tips, you know, of, like, how to say things, certain subjects without the jargon. And also to really use interpretable modeling techniques when you show the results to the, the people in the departments. In fact, I almost never share statistical or machine learning results with business people. I usually only present them with analytics mm-hmm. that makes it more concrete you know, and understandable for them. And then just little things like that to make sure that you label all your Charts and graphs clearly and in plain English, mm-hmm. um, it really makes a big difference. And also, you know, another pet peeve for many people is like too many significant digits. <laughs> if you put, you print the default display, and it'll be like you know five significant digits or something, and it's just distracting, you know, to the to the regular audience. So you really want to use even just like the minimum significant digits will make it less intimidating and and more easier to communicate to business people who aren't you know data scientists
1: i see in order to fight churn effectively you also emphasize the importance of creating great customer metrics which um you know basically are ratio or basic behavioral metrics and some of these these metrics include things like utilization rate and and success rate to name a few Uh, why are these metrics necessary to measure
2: That's a really good question. And it's actually really goes to the heart of like the most important subjects of the book. So thank you, actually, I want to thank you for taking the time to (laughs) to read it and process it. But so to explain that, the basic metrics you're talking about are things like how much does a customer use the product? Like how many downloads do they do? Or how many calls do they make? Or something like that. Or how many documents do they edit? And those are good and they can show how some metrics are correlated with churn and retention. The challenge comes that many behaviors are correlated together. So for example, an example I make in my book is that in say a social networking app, someone who uses the app a lot will post a lot of messages maybe, and that's good for churn. They churn less the more messages they post. At the same time, someone who uses the app a lot will see a lot of ads and seeing a lot of ads, you'd think it's actually bad, right? The more ads someone sees you, your gut tells you that that's not good. And the more ads they see, the more likely they'll churn. Mm -hmm. But the thing is power users make a lot of posts and see a lot of ads. And it's true for any product, your power users who use it a lot are going to do a lot of everything. So then if you look at a simple correlation, for example, between ad viewing and churn, you'll see that the more customers who view ads, the less they churn. And you're like, huh, why is more more ad viewing lead to less churn? That doesn't make any sense. But it's because of the correlation with positive behaviors. So the power users churn less. But the power users post a lot and they view a lot and they have a lot of friends right it's the social network and that's why they don't churn now they also see a lot of ads but that's not why they don't churn now the ratio metric is an interpretable way to unpack those kinds of effects so in this case the ratio metric that i recommend in the book is something like the ad views per post that the customer makes. So it's the ratio of the number of ads they viewed to the number of posts they made on the social network. And then you actually see that more ads is bad. So you, but you have to make it a relative measurement of the bad thing compared to the good thing to capture that effect in an interpretable metric, I should emphasize. Now the other way if you do if you're a data scientist, you could also do something like principal component analysis and you, you know, you have you know, difference factors, uh, you have components that that are the difference between other metrics. And that's a, that's a statistical technique that can capture the same effects. The problem is that no one in the business will understand your principal component analysis. (laughs) So if you want to make metrics that explain these, these interactions, between different behaviors, taking ratios is actually the most effective way that I've found. Like if you go to the business people and say, hey, I made a metric, ad views per post for our social network customers. And it shows that if people see too many ads relative to their postings, then that's bad. You know? And that's really intuitive. You know? And there are other metrics like the most important one in the book is usually involves money. So if it's a telco um, Mm -hmm. where you make calls, this is actually a voice over IP company that I worked with. The metric is like calls per dollar or dollars per call, either ratio, either way, the ratio can be very informative. And again, it captures the effect that you find a surprise when you look at, at a company like that telco, that the more people pay, the less they churn, but actually The reason is they're bigger customers, they sign up for a higher plan. So it's actually a selection bias that the more people pay, the less they churn. But then when you look at what they pay relative to what they use, then you actually see the more they pay, the more they churn, but it's gotta be the relative cost. So those are a few examples illustrating why the the ratio metrics are really central actually to the method that I use to make this understandable for business people. There are also great features for improving machine learning models. I show that in my book too, mm-hmm. that if you take the time to devise these ratio metrics, it improves the accuracy of your forecasting significantly.
1: Mm, I see. Yeah. I guess like that really kind of emphasizes, that, you know, that usage right? Correlation. That That's not great causation. In this case, like some of the basic behavioral metrics, you know, when, when the behaviors are correlated, it can be really hard to guy the, the drivers of churn and retention using some of these simple metrics and some of these advanced ratio metrics that you mentioned. You know, they're easy to understand. They, uh, they're usable by different teams. They help you with uh, tackling, like, segmented the users. And so all of that, and it reveals some of the interaction between these correlated metrics without complex dimensionality reduction, for example, PCA. Um, so, yeah, definitely a, a very useful insights to to take away for anyone listeners who are building trend prediction models.
2: Yeah, I mean, and almost any kind of modeling too, you know, uncorrelatedness of your input features is key because if you put in two different features that are highly correlated, Mm -hmm. you're not actually putting in two different features, you know?
1: For sure. I I guess you already mentioned this, but like that really go back to some of your experience learning from or working at Morgan Stanley Capital, right? Like when you mentioned that, uh, that important. Yeah.
2: Yeah, a lot of my, my understanding of this, it really goes back to that. And actually, the ratio metric is a technique from Wall Street, if you think about it. Like, look at the metrics people use for stocks, like price earnings ratio. The reason they make that ratio is because companies with high earning tend to have high price. So the two variables are correlated but the ratio kind of uncouples it and shows you, is the price high or low relative to the earnings? And the same thing for so many financial metrics like book value per share, debt to equity ratio, they they use ratios everywhere in stock and company analysis Mm -hmm. because it's the exact same problem as power users on a product. But in the stock market, the power users are the big companies. They have a lot of earnings, a lot of revenue, a lot of dividends, a lot of assets. You know, They have a lot of everything. So then you have to look at the ratios of those quantities to get uncorrelated metrics that you can use to compare the companies.
1: Absolutely. We talked already about this, but uh, at the moment, you are um, currently in the process of Wrapping up a technical book with Manning called Fighting Churn with Data. And the book provides a clear overview of Churn concepts, along with hands on tricks and tips you have developed through years of experience analyzing customer behavior. What have been the the challenges you encountered during the writing process thus far?
2: Well, my challenges were to a certain degree self inflicted (laughs) because, I mean, essentially, I changed some things about the book during the writing to make it better. (laughs) Basically, at this point, the final version of the book, you use a simulation, a simulated data set to demonstrate many of the concepts, because I don't have a churn, a true churn data set that I can share, you know, data about customers is very sensitive. So I had to make this simulation and I didn't really plan it in advance, to be honest. I just kept trying to enhance the simulation more and more to demonstrate the concepts in the later chapters but then when I changed the simulation I had to go back and edit re-edit the earlier chapters. I kept kind of iterating on my simulation making it better and better but then I had to keep going back and editing the old chapters to match the new simulation so I really should have you know gotten the simulation to work perfectly first before I started writing but so that was a big challenge. A lot, like I said, it was self-inflicted, but I think it was it was worthwhile doing that iteration, you know, because the final product is, you know, just a lot better.
1: I see. Yeah, it's it's emphasized the importance of having a good, really good data to work with.
2: Yeah, yeah. And planning your book to, I mean, really planning it carefully because I kind of had an outline, but I hadn't, you know, planned exactly what I was going to write in every chapter. So then I, I kept needing to. I had to update earlier chapters to accommodate the direction I took in later chapters. So that was again, it was kind of my fault, but I did my best.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'll be sure to include the link to the to the book in the show notes for people who are interested in purchasing it and and providing it alongside with some of the e code uh, for for this car as well. Reflecting on your career thus far, how do you think that your academic background in computational neuroscience? really contribute to your success as a quant analyst and a data scientist?
2: Well, it's contributed so much. Well, really more, for me, it was more my graduate education because it was in graduate school where I feel like I really just got practice with the scientific method. And the scientific method starts with research and mastering a subject and, you know, reading the papers and the references that you need to master a subject and that is just such an important skill and you really get it in graduate school just because you just have to do it constantly you have to read so many papers and so many academic subjects you just get really good at it to the point where at this point i feel like i could learn almost anything like Mm -hmm. i've already learned some of the hardest subjects that are out there if i just like sit down with the books long enough you can learn it and that's a really important skill. And also figuring out what you need to learn really and tracing references is a very important skill for mastering Mm -hmm. new subjects. Like Mm -hmm. if you read a paper and you don't understand it, you have to read the references because they're gonna tell you the foundations for that. You know, all science is built on past work. And honestly, a lot of people, particularly in computer science, they have a tendency to want to reinvent things because in a computer science education, you focus on creating your own algorithms and you don't get any credit for copying other people, right? Yeah. So computer scientists have this mindset that, oh, I'm just gonna build up my own algorithm and that's how they work. But really data scientists should always do the background research, understand the state of the art, you know, before you try to build something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the foundation of science, they say, standing on the shoulder of giants. Um, and then also, I mean, just how to think about hypothesis testing, because, you know, we're constantly faced with hypothesis testing scenarios where you don't know what's the right method, you know, you don't know what's the right technique. Um, and just, you know, thinking empirically and testing when when you're uncertain, you have to think of a test that you can do that will clarify the situation. And that's hard to do sometimes because you know, and in a way, that way science is often as much of an art as it is a science. Maybe that's an oxymoron, but <laughs> my point is, there are so many possible hypotheses to test. You can't test them all. So you actually have to use your domain knowledge and your intuition and your craft to come up with a small set of hypotheses that you could actually test. And that, kind of thinking applies, you know, pretty much in any, any kind of data science work.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks a lot for emphasizing on some of those, you know, key attributes, key lessons that you get from academia, I guess, from learning how to learn, develop a, a testing driven mindset and, you know, usually do deletions before meeting, do a certain project and having that experimental uh, mindset is really important
2: in, yeah, exactly. in this
1: analytical driven field, right?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: My final question before we move on to the closing segment is that um, you've done your, your PhD in Los Angeles, in the greater SoCal area. You know, you traveled to New York a couple of times when during your time working in finance. And oh, now, and my,
2: I do also studied at NYU.
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah. I did mention a little bit of that uh, at the beginning. Yeah. And you uh, have worked in, in tech in the Bay Area since, over the past you know, five years or so. How would you compare your experience living and working at these different geographic regions and in very different environment.
2: Yeah, well, each city is so different. I mean, New York is like the greatest city if you really like the city life and, you know, the excitement and stores and restaurants and just being able to walk around, you know, and do things. I mean, I didn't mention I actually grew up in New York. Oh, so okay. I grew up there as a, you know, until I went to college. So i always love big cities and I love the city life. Although honestly, now that I'm older, I feel like it's just too crowded <laughs> in the city. And the problem for me with living in New York is it's too hard to get out of the city. You know, you have to drive hours and hours and you're still in the suburbs before you get to anything resembling like, you know, nature or wilderness. <laughs> and California, the, it's a lot easier to get out of the city. You know, If you drive an hour from San Francisco, you can be in a really natural area like on the beach or in the hills or mountains or something like that. Now, Los Angeles is completely different from New York and it's a hard city to move to because Los Angeles is like an insider town where you have to know where the good stuff is to go. There's, it has Los Angeles has so much to offer when you first get there you don't know where anything is and unlike new york you can't just walk around and find stuff (laughs) because you can't walk around in los angeles everything's too far apart so you have to drive your car and to get around and then it leads to this lifestyle where you need inside information to know where all the good restaurants and clubs and stuff are because they'll be hidden away like in little, little strip malls in Los Angeles, maybe the best restaurant and you drive past it every day and you don't know it's there unless you get a tip. You know? So it's hard to move to Los Angeles, but really rewarding and, and wonderful once you've been there long enough to kind mm-hmm. of get your own network for finding stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for me, San Francisco is like the perfect balance because you have, it's more of a big city experience like New York but you also can get, at, you know, you can get out to nature and the mountains and the beach a lot more easily. Of course, now we're having these forest fires and the, the air quality is terrible. So it's not so great just now, but normally <laughs> it's great.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so Carl, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. And then you can just provide the knowledge for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data science universe whose work you admire.
2: Okay, number one I'll say is Conrad Cording, both with a K, Conrad and K, last name Cording. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who's investigating the relationship between brains and machine learning. So he's you know, really looking at you know, how do brains actually work and how does that relate to algorithms like deep learning? That's one person. Another person is Kate Crawford, who's an NYU professor who researches the social implications of bias in machine learning. And that's become a hot topic the last year or two, but Kate Crawford was one of the people who really, you know, founded that. Third person, I'll say Casey Kozorkov. I'm not actually sure I'm pronouncing her her name correctly. Casey Kozorkov is K-O-Z-Y-R-K-O-V. And she's a Google blogger. So she's like a decision scientist at Google. She's also a very prolific blogger. Who And she really emphasizes balancing statistics, analytics, and machine learning, which I think is you know, really key. And it's great that there's a leading figure who's you know, mm-hmm. calling that out because so many people just emphasize the machine learning without you know, the other areas of the discipline.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, definitely familiar with some of the work from Kate and yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of a Cassie blog post on Medium for, for a while.
2: Yeah, yeah. She writes a lot on Medium. I read those.
1: Number two. Name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset.
2: I might have to name two books because I'm biased and I would encourage people to read my own book. (laughs) I mean, my own book encourages people to think a problem through from the beginning to end, meaning like from raw data to the features, to the outcomes you're interested in and also how you communicate the findings so that other people can achieve the outcomes. So that's my own book, Fighting Churn with Data. But I don't want to just recommend my own book. That would be lame. So I would also recommend the series called Freakonomics. You've probably heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, two Stevens. They work together. And it's a really amazing book. And it shows you how creative you can be in coming up with data to test a hypothesis, even when it seems like, an untestable hypothesis they come up with weird ways to use data to test it and i think it's just brilliant
1: yeah thanks for sharing that yeah big, big fan of economics and they also have like a podcast i've been listening uh, yep. a couple you know a couple of months ago so definitely recommend that as well and then uh, lastly imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on twitter what could you tweet about
2: Um, that's a tough one. There's so much important advice for aspiring data scientists. I tell people to focus on feature engineering. That's what I would tell aspiring data scientists. Focus on understanding the problem and feature engineering. Don't obsess about the latest, greatest algorithm that you hear about because the the feature engineering is the most important. And also the other thing I would say, this is too long for a tweet, obviously, (laughs) but you've probably heard a lot of people complain about how in data science you spend most of your time preparing the data and only a little bit doing, you know, the learning. I think people should embrace that more, you know, because the preparation of the data is actually a really creative and integral part. And it's actually the part where you really learn something, you know, about whatever it is you're studying. And that's like where the real science happens. So, The real scientific part is actually preparing your data. And once you're running your machine learning algorithm, at that point, you're just a technician, you know? So I actually encourage people to embrace the data preparation rather than getting in the mindset of, oh, I wish I didn't have to prepare the data. I wish I could just run machine learning algorithms all day no, you'd be bored running machine learning algorithms all day, you know, embrace the data, you know, get into the messiness and, you know, really learn something. That's my advice.
1: There's no reason. It's called data science, right? Not, not algorithm science. So,
2: yeah. And yeah. Not, well, there is machine learning engineering. So and if you really just like running algorithms all day, I guess there's a career for you. It's called machine learning engineering. But I think people should embrace the, you know, the, the messiness of data preparation rather than complaining about it so much.
1: Brilliant. I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant way to analyze our conversation. So Kyle, I really enjoy uh, talking with you today, learning about your academic background in competition neuroscience, just working in finance as a quant analyst, your move to working in tech in Silicon Valley, your explanation of subscription business model, churn prediction, some of the detailed analysis on what makes Churn a hard problem to, to work with? Definitely your book, Finding Churn with Data, which is a great resources that uh, people can learn from, as, as well as some of the, our conversation regarding your career development and geographic preferences as well. So and be sure to include all of that into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to uh, learn more about your profile and uh, check out some of your work as well, right? And, and is in your book, if they're interested. So yeah, Carl, uh, appreciate you spending time in, in quarantine talking with me, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.
2: Yeah, thanks, James. I really appreciate it. Well,
0: that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jamescaley.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now